Drill, baby, drill. He had such enormous fun that he called for another elephant to come. It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. Secretary Clinton. America, stay out the bushes. Stay out the bushes. Jet is a mess. And welcome to a Wednesday, March, March, March 1st episode edition of The Elephants in the Room. Not a leap year. Yeah, the official month where folks who have to go through this thing called winter start to feel like, I'm over this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is definitely the stir-crazy time of winter up north where I was looking for through some, some photos yesterday, and this is back uh, pandemic days, March 18th, shot of us at a golf course, and my ball landed in a patch of snow i'm actually surprised we were able to play that early yeah i am too looking back on it i can't um it was uh yeah i'm I'm surprised i'm surprised uh we were able to too but we did we did and that was before the golf courses of course were shut down for no reason whatsoever um anywho um good show today lots of stuff to talk about Lots of stuff going on in the news. Lots of stuff getting people all worked up online. Um, anyone who's spent any time on Twitter in the past 24 to 48 hours, I'm sure has seen all of the sniping back and forth from the people who have, who are beginning to draw some lines and are starting to, um, I think you're starting to see people come out of the woodwork and be more critical of both Trump and DeSantis. Um, and you're starting to see this primary start to pick up a little bit, and we're going to get into the politics of things. But as we all know, politics, to, to quote someone who uh, apparently was 11, 11 years ago, that Breitbart passed away, or 12 years ago, something, something like that, very close. But anyways, one of, one of Andrew Breitbart's most famous lines, politics is downstream from culture. That's right. I don't know if he came up with that line. I've heard different versions of it, but it was a um 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 a common. It was one of the driving forces behind what Breitbart set out to expose, which was the cultural, just just how deep the cultural rot in America goes, and. Today, I was perusing the internet, and I came across an article that I'm surprised is not being spoken about more, but maybe that's just because it's, um, it's new, it's fresh, it's a couple hours old. Hot off the press. Folks, where we are, the weather outside is absolutely astounding right now. We are having some just like we are having some nice, nice solid desert thunderstorms come in, and um, the wind is just awesome to watch. But anyways, yeah, this is hot off the presses. Some of you may know this person. His name is Matt Iglesias. He used to write for uh, a whole bunch of different left wing publications. Um, I think at one point he might have been Nation or New Republic. One of those. Honestly, he might be. Yeah, you know, I mean, there was there's back in the time where this this is this is someone who's considered an intelligent liberal, but a reflexive liberal nevertheless, and a standard Harvard educated, ivy educated liberal, a doctrinaire liberal. His, the people that he spends his time hanging out with are liberal, liberal social circles, liberal upbringing, liberal education. No one is doubting this man's credentials or has ever doubted this man's credentials for as long as I have been aware of him, which is about 14 years. 
Why are young liberals so depressed? There's a neglected dimension beyond gender in America's troubled youth. Earlier, and I'm going I'm to take an extensive time reading from this article because it is worth it. Okay. Earlier this month, the CDC released the results of its Youth Risk Behavior Survey of American Teenagers. The findings have been much discussed, with the focus largely and understandably on the fact that teenage girls are suffering from extraordinarily high levels of sadness and depression. And this is something that we've seen pop up, not just lately in the news in the era of social media, but I remember back in the day, a day before Facebook, a day before MySpace, back in the day, Victoria's Secret catalogs, Abercrombie and Fitch catalogs. Magazines. Magazines. How many times were we, would you turn on the Today Show, Good Morning America, headline news in the evening? All of these girls, they're being pushed. These body images, it has to be bad for their body image. So this, folks, this isn't, something, this isn't something new. But, of course, in the era of social media, it is something that I think we're seeing. It's just more in our face. It's more pervasive. And it's something that you can't. You have a hard time shielding what someone sees on their phone because you're not in control of what they're doing on their phone, right? But you do have somewhat control as the head of a household on what might be on the radio, a television, or publications that make their way into your house. You do have some, not complete, but some. Anyways. But I think this conversation has overlooked a few things. One possible culprit for this widespread sadness is that social media apps are especially damaging to girls' psychological health, a thesis long championed by Jonathan Haidt. And even though on its face, Haidt's point seems left-wing, that new technology has downside risks and big companies need to be regulated more, the idea has taken on a mostly right-wing inflection, with Josh Howley, senator from Missouri, its most vocal champion in the Senate. This was a tweet from Josh Howley. Let's set 16 as the age requirement for kids to use social media. Stop letting these companies exploit our kids. And this is something that Vivek Ramaswamy, who's running for the Republican nomination, has also been championing. I think he wants it to be 18, 16, 18. We're cutting, we're, we're splitting hairs here, folks. The point being is that for adolescents, for people who are growing up, this is extraordinarily dangerous technology that we haven't fully understood its impact on our youth, the development of the youth in this country, our youth. Um, I'll make your way through these next two paragraphs quickly. Social media is good at generating polarization. And some of the left-inflicted left pushback has essentially argued that maybe teens aren't depressed because of phones, but because, in Taylor Lawrence's words, quote, we are living in late-stage capitalist hellscape during an ongoing deadly pandemic with record wealth inequality, zero social safety net job security as climate change cooks the world. Noah Smith and Eric Levitz. Oh, that's some glass half full stuff. Right. Right? Uh, Noah Smith and Eric Levitz both wrote good articles questioning the veracity of that Doomer narrative. And Michelle Goldberg, who's a liberal columnist at the New York Times, did an excellent piece trying to reframe the issue, arguing correctly that the idea that unaccountable corporate behemoths are harming kids with their products shouldn't be a hard one for liberals to accept, even if figures like Howley believe it as well. I.E., and there's a parallel here with something that we'll talk about later on the show, i.e., just because a Republican is raising a red flag about an issue, that is not a reason to dismiss the conclusion outright, i.e., what we used to call the scientific method, right? This is critical thinking. This is a scientific method, right? You, hear, you present a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, and you come to a conclusion about the hypothesis. This is, this is how conversation used to happen in America. This is how debate used to happen in America. And I know I'm romanticizing things. We can all go back to that famous late 1850s incident on the Senate floor with one senator beating snot out of another one with a cane. Look, I get it. Not everything has always been civil. However, generally speaking, when it came time to debate serious issues and policy matters. 
You didn't just outright. It's a it's a terrible strategy to reject someone's idea just because of their party affiliation, right? Because even even and I'll say this: even for the most partisan people, you have to realize that even a blind squirrel will find a nut every now and then. And it's extraordinarily dangerous and extraordinarily ignorant to close your mind off of ideas from people just because they may come to a conclusion different than you. This is the world that liberals want, right? This is what we talk about with cancel culture. This is what the world that liberals want. Liberals don't want a pushback on their conclusions, on their ideas. They want complete fealty to the liberal narrative, the politically correct narrative. or nothing at all. So it's interesting that we have all of these liberal writers looking at this and going, this is just doomsday talk. This is an optimist. The world is not this bad. The CDC doesn't ask teens about their political beliefs. But there was a 2021 paper by uh, Catherine Jimbrone, Lisa Bates, Seth Prinz, and Catherine Keyes titled The Politics of Depression. Now, this survey did ask teens their political affiliation along with, are you sad or not? They found that liberal girls have the highest increase in depressive effect and conservative boys have the least. But liberal boys are more depressed than conservative girls suggesting an important independent role for political ideology. And if you, um, this is great radio, um, and we'll link to this article in the show notes that we'll post online. But if you go to this, you'll see a graph that basically shows that for the most part, throughout, through, for, from 2005 to about 2011, that female and male liberals were both equally miserable at same rates. And that female and male conservatives were less miserable at about equal rates. Um, however, male conservatives tend to, be, tended to be a little bit more miserable than female conservatives. The, I, the funny thing about looking at this is that most of the time right here, we have female conservatives being the less depressed, the most happy. Interesting. Aren't these the women that the media always craps on? Mm -hmm. Right? The trad bombs, the trad wives. You go on social media, you see that trend? Women who want to be a, play a traditional gender role. Typically, these are more conservative-leaning women. How come they're the happiest? And how come the women who are 35 have had more partners than they can count and don't have a family, how come they're, how come they're miserable? I wonder if the media has been lying to people. Maybe we'll go, maybe, maybe, maybe the people that you're listening to, the celebrities and the folks on television on TikTok aren't your friends and aren't looking out for your best interests. We'll get there. Now, some of it may be a selection effect with progressive politics becoming a more congenial home for people who are miserable. But I think some of it is poor behavior by adult progressives many of whom now valorize depressive effect as a sign of political commitment. The thing about depression, though, is that it's bad. I think we need some kind of society-level cognitive behavioral therapy to convince people that whatever it is they are worried about, depression is not the answer because it never is. And now the paper does start to go into um, a little bit of a more, um, uh, it does take a little bit more of a personal tone. And the author does talk about his own struggles with, with, with mental health, right? You have good days, you have bad days, trying to, trying to figure out who I am. Try, he, and he's open about it. I'm trying to figure out who I am. Is it anger? Is it depression? He talks about how he sorts out through this and comes to the conclusion that, oh my gosh, there are a lot more beautiful things. Like, try to find the bright side. We, we talk about this all the time on the show. We've brought this point up about how, how optimism is just such an important and powerful factor in life. And when we, are, we talk about this always when assessing candidates, who are the candidates that are painting an optimistic picture and who are the candidates that are painting a pessimistic picture? 
Who are the people? Who are the who are the people that you want to be behind? The optimists or the pessimists? The people who think that better days are ahead of us. We just we got to keep reaching for it. Or the pessimists. You know what? It's it's over. It's done. Those people are always so much fun to be around. The pessimists. But then the paper goes to start to look into some of the political leanings of these writers. Like most academics, these writers seem to be left-wing. If there were more Republicans working as professors, we'd probably balance out this line of inquiry with papers asking whether rising levels you know, of, of shootings and homicides would com contribute to racial disparities in mental health. Right? But there aren't. It's just the bad, the bad, the bad. So even when all the research being done is good, we primarily see research looking at questions that progressives think are interesting, right? Which is basically comes down to these evil conservatives, what are they doing? Then there's this great half page, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing and read, but basically there's this hypothesis that, okay, there were some great things that happened to liberal kids. You know, the first black president was elected, Barack Obama. However, the Great Recession crippled the United States economy, the student debt crisis, Donald Trump was then elected, he appointed conservative support, Supreme Court justices, there's been school shootings, structural racism, police violence against black people, pervasive sexism and sexual assault, rampant socioeconomic inequality. Um, these are unavoidable, fe unavoidable features of political discourse. Liberal adolescents may have therefore experienced alienation within a growing conservative political climate such that their mental health suffered in comparison to that of their conservative peers whose hegemonic views were flourishing. I would have a hard time finding a group of conservative youth in the year of our Lord 2023 who think that we're winning. <laughs> Does anyone think that we're winning right now on the right? Does anyone think that the last 10 years have been a smashing success for the Republican Party? I understand that we had four years of Donald Trump, okay? And the shining star that comes out of that are not one, two, but three Supreme Court justices. Has our culture gotten better? Has our culture improved? Are our children doing better than they were 10 years ago? Has government taken more control of your life than it has 10 years ago? Has government yes. gotten larger? Yes. Over the past 10 years? Are we more debt as a country than we were 10 years ago? Oh, definitely. Are yes. we 10 years closer to walking over the Social Security and Medicare cliff? That is an arithmetic fact. I'm starting to think Max is asking rhetorical questions. I'll let Mr. Glacius make my point for me. Okay. I'm not saying any of those particular points are wrong, but if these Columbia epidemiologists walked down the street to talk to Columbia economist Richard Clarita, I wonder how he would characterize political trends over the last 20 years. Clarita was Assistant Secretary of Treasury for Economic Policy under George W. Bush. And in terms of the big political fights of the mid-Bush years, the Iraq War, gay marriage, social security privatization, liberals totally ran the table. The collapse in political support for Bush-style free trade policies has been so complete, hardly anyone even, even remembers that that's what the conservative view was. So is it really true that in some objective sense, conservative views are flourishing and hegemonic? What I think is most relevant from a mental health perspective is that, like most things in life, politics is a bit of a mixed bag that could be looked at in different ways. The catalog of woes offered in the paper sound less to me like a casual explanation of why progressive teens have more depressive effect than it does like listening to a depressed liberal give an account of recent American politics. Mentally processing ambiguous events with a negative spin is just what depression is. And while the finding that liberals are disproportionately likely to do it is interesting and important, it's not sound practice to celebrate that or tell them that they are right to do it. <laughs> I.e., you mopey liberals. You don't have control over all of these things that are happening. 
Life is a series of twists and turns and ups and downs. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Right? There's a boxer, Jack Dempsey, famous quote. A champion is someone who gets up off the mat. Right? You're going to get knocked down in life. Things aren't going to go your way. You are going to lose policy battles if you truly are a true believer in conservatism or progressivism or communism or whatever the hell you believe in and you care about this stuff like we do there are going to be days where you do not want to turn on the news there's going to be weeks where you do not want to turn on the news there are going to be months where you forego even wanting to look at the news but at some point you turn it back on and at some point you look at it again at some point you get reinvigorated because you want to know what there's another battle coming and the left never sleeps it is a runaway freight train with no brakes progressivism <laughs> the only thing that we could do to stop it is to make sure that we are offering a coherent alternative to a life that is 100 percent controlled by the state that is what we are up against at all times. There are going to be battles on all sorts of different fronts. But folks, the most important one is making sure that we shrink the size of the government at every turn that we can. It's a wonderful piece that we'll link to. And it's so conservative. It's so conservative. It just, just defines what makes conservatives conservative. We care about these people. We don't want to see people sad. We don't want to see people mopey. We don't want to see anything like that. You want to know why it's bad for society. People not reaching their potential is terrible for society. People being drains on society, people who aren't being productive, people who aren't helping others, people who aren't, who aren't being parts of their community. That's why we're conservative. That's why we're conservative. Because we want the best for everyone. We want to see everyone reach their potential. And sometimes... Things aren't going to go your way. That's why you got to keep fighting. Why I stood up to Disney. Maybe this. OMG. Maybe the most talked about article today. Oh, yeah. Do tell. I don't know anything about this article. Well, so uh, Governor Mr. DeSantis is. Um, oh, this is written by DeSantis. On his book tour. So that's written by DeSantis. This is DeSantis. This was uh, in the Wall Street Journal today. And in it, I would say that this is Why his... I took down Mickey Mouse. Right. Well, <laughs> we'll get to we'll get to we'll get to Mr. DeSantis and we'll get to Mr. Trump as well. This is sort of his first, I guess, policy shot across the bow at everyone else. Disney's special arrangement, which dates to 1967, was an indefensible example of corporate welfare. It provided the company with favorable tax treatment, including the ability to assess its own property valuations and to enjoy the benefits of regional infrastructure improvements without paying taxes towards the projects. It exempted Disney from Florida's building and fire prevention codes. It even allowed Disney to build a nuclear power plant and to use eminent domain to seize private property outside the district's boundaries. While special districts are common in Florida, Disney's deal was conspicuous in the massive benefits it conferred. Disney's self-governing status endured because the company's unrivaled political power in Florida made its arrangement virtually untouchable. Folks, this right here is going to be one of the central battles of the 2024 Republican primary. 
and I want to read that paragraph and I want to follow it up with a second one, which is the line that everyone is quoting today. Which is? In this environment, old guard corporate republicanism isn't up to the task at hand. For decades, GOP elected officials have campaigned on free market principles, but governed as corporatists, supporting subsidies, tax breaks, and legislative carve-outs to confer special benefits on entrenched corporate interests. But policies that benefit corporate America don't necessarily serve the interests of America's people and economy. So there it is. There's the shot across the bow. Did anyone else notice the contradiction? What's the contradiction? While special districts are common in Florida, Disney's deal was conspicuous in the massive benefits it conferred. For decades, GOP elected officials have campaigned on free market principles, but governors corporatists, supporting subsidies, tax breaks, and legislative carve-outs to confer special benefits on entrenched corporate interests. I ask you this, Governor DeSantis, what are you doing about the other special districts in Florida? If this is a philosophical point that he's trying to make, I don't understand why he would have these two paragraphs in the same article. Because if someone as stupid as I can see a possible contradiction in his logic here, surely someone on the Trump campaign is noticing the same thing. Why, Ron? Why, Governor DeSantis? Are you picking winners and losers? Would be my question to the governor. And I don't say this point as someone who doesn't like Governor DeSantis or what he's doing or necessarily disagrees with what he's doing at Disney. I bring this point up because this is going to be a knockdown, drag out, bare knuckle brawl for 16 months. Woof. This is going to be in your face. You wait until you see the whites of their eyes until you pull the trigger kind of primary. We are going to get personal. It's going to be in the back alley. It's going to be a knife fight. You got to have stuff buttoned up. And one of the things that, that Ron DeSantis needs to do if he has a hope of defeating President Trump in the primary, is he's got to offer a clear, clear path forward that expands on the MAGA movement, I guess we'll call it. Offers some ideological differences, probably brings it to the right more. I would say, if anything, DeSantis is going to want to bring things back to the right, right? Because there's a lot of elements in Trump's proposals, especially around entitlements. Him and his buddy Mitch McConnell, <laughs> yeah, you already did there. Trump and Mitch teaming up to save Social Security and Medicare. Thurwick's got under the bus. DeSantis is going to have to answer questions like this. Right? Hey, Ron, if you're a small government conservative, why are you picking winners and losers? Because there's another special district. You want to know what the second largest special district down there in Florida is? And it's technically a different kind of district. Disney was a Section 189 district. This other one is a Section 190 district. Why do, they, do a lot of states have districts? Not like Florida, apparently. Okay. It's the villages. Oh, Lord. The Villages is a special district that has all sorts of special benefits. Villages votes about 70 to 75% Republican. And there's a documentary on it. They're not going anywhere. Villages special privileges aren't going anywhere. All right, we took our shots at DeSantis. Now let's take our shots at Trump. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I just want to point out I... I I'm already starting to see people out there who are television hosts or media figures who are either one picking sides or two aren't trying 
to do what we are supposed to be doing, which is move the conversation to the right. Move the conversation conservative. Make the conversation about limited government. Make the conversation about bringing power back to the states and out of the hands of the federal government, right? How are we going to win this culture war that we are losing on a daily basis? These are the conversations we need to have. This is why we need to ask these tough questions of these candidates on our side. It's not mean, it's not rude, it's not disrespectful. If I asked Ron DeSantis that question, do you think he'd call me a jerk? No. No, he wouldn't, because he would realize that that's a question that, that someone who has legitimate beliefs in small government would want answered. It's a policy question. It's not, hey, are you playing favorites? It's, hey, I'm noticing, I'm noticing something here in this. Could you help me explain it? We're supposed to be doing that with these candidates, folks. And one thing that's most instructive when it comes to deciding who you want to vote for in the primary is how candidates respond to this line of questioning. Are you defensive? Do you start name calling? Do you start pointing fingers? Do you start, oh, how can you question me? Are you willing to have a thoughtful, engaging back and forth about an important policy issue, an important distinction? I know which side I'm on. Great poll numbers are springing forth for your favorite president, me, against Ron DeSanctis and Biden. I guess people are finding out that he wanted to cut Social Security and raise the minimum age to at least 70, at least four times. Likewise with Medicare, wanted big cuts. He is a wheelchair over the cliff kind of guy, just like his hero, failed politician Paul Ryan, the Fox News ratings destroyer who led Mitt Romney's presidential campaign down the tubes. Globalists all, we want America first. Wow. That was a lot. I'm going to try and shoot five people with one bullet. While using Barack Obama's gun, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> everyone on the cons everyone. He's like, folks, literally, <laughs> I am the only savior. Everyone else is terrible. <laughs> you know. I'm not going to go into the psychology of any of this. I'm just going to simply say this. If you deny that Social Security and Medicare need to be reformed immediately, like the next administration needs and the next Congress kind of need to do this. We have 10 years, maybe. So the next two administrations need to do this. And we know how Washington works. It's not going to get done in one. This is going to be a long process to fix this. The clock is ticking, especially for future generations. Do you think that it's responsible for a president, or a presidential candidate, I should say, to deny the arithmetic around entitlement spending? Or to put it a different way, do you believe that future generations should be taxed to smithereens in order to pay for what has become the government's 401k program for layabouts? Sorry, that's what it's become. I know everyone pays into the system. The way that the system is structured now, given life expectancy for most American adults, most people take out more than they're ever going to put into the system. That's a problem. 
Let me describe this social security system a different way. The social security system pays out benefits by using the funds that are being distributed by new people entering the social security program. Do you know what I'm describing here? <laughs> you are describing a Ponzi scheme. I am describing a Ponzi scheme. Social Security has turned into a Ponzi scheme. We're effectively, because of mismanagement of the program for the past almost 90 years at this point, and remember, let's 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 you know, like let's just say this has been going on for 90. There have been 90 years to fix this. At no point, the last time, like the article right, George W. Bush, Social Security privatization. This has been something that has been a conservative argument for as long as I've understood politics. Right? And look how far we've gotten. The private savings account, remember that? The private savings account? No one's saying that there shouldn't be some sort of Social Security program that provides for people in the event that they cannot take care of themselves, right? There is Social Security disability insurance. The idea behind Social Security was is that you would save for your retirement. But however, in the event that things took a bad turn or in the event that we just couldn't kill you, that Social Security, sorry, I say that jokingly, in the event that you just kept living, Social Security would be there to go, hey, look, you outlived your retirement. You did everything right in life. We're not going to leave you out on the street. We're here to we're here to pick up the pieces, right? We're the government. We're here to help. We're, well, but that's but that's <laughs> but that's the social right. The social safety net isn't supposed to be Plan A. The social safety net and social security isn't even really supposed to be Plan B. It's supposed to be like Plan D or E, right? And then and America has changed a lot, right? I mean, when you think about. Women who weren't always in the workplace. We didn't always have 401ks, retirement accounts, or a lot of government pensions. There's a reason why Social Security existed. Retirement planning has changed. Our generation plans for retirement differently than our parents, different than our grandparents. Right? So there were reasons for this program. The abundance of investment opportunities for people who work for a living to put aside money in your paycheck so that at some point in the future you might not have to work as much as you currently do are so vast innumerable you almost can't turn on a television, radio, go on social media without being bombarded with some sort of investment product these days. There has to be at least two changes to the social security system as we know it. One is going to be the age of retirement. We are going to have to tell a generation, probably not one, we are going to have to tell a generation right now, if you were born 2013 and after, you're 10 years old right now, your retirement age to get social security is going to be 75. Plan accordingly. Congratulations. You were born in the most prosperous time in American history. But you get to retire when you're 75. That's one of the things we have to do now. Immediately. Number one. Has to, has to, has to be done. Has to be done. The second thing that has to be done with Social Security is that there has to be an opportunity for people to pull out of the system if they don't want to be part of it. It's the only way. You're going to have to have options for people to pull out of the system. You're going to have to have options for people to, to, to take their own risks and take their own chances. It's the only way the program's going to work. It, it, the program really can only be set up to be a fail-safe. I, like I said, the social safety net in America has turned into Plan A. We've had these, 
we haven't been had and putting on any trash television, but last night while I was cleaning our house, I have been putting on old television episodes of the Rush Limbaugh show. Circa nineteen ninety three. And they're talking he was talking about this about Social Security and Medicare all the way back then and about how, you know, this is a ticking time bomb, we have to get this fixed, we've gotta, you know, we have to privatize Social Security if we can. But that the other thing that he brought up is how remarkable it is that all of these people are able to scam the system. And he goes, You know how to scam the system? Do you know how to scam the system? Is he asking the audience, do you know how to scam do you know how to scam the system? Is you know how much work it takes to scam the system? Imagine if these people spent the time it took scamming the system to do something productive, what they would be able to accomplish. To go back to our point about government dependency. So we've created a system where there is an incentive and a real benefit for people to learn to scam the system. Got to get rid of those incentives. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Right? This is, a, this is something where politicians are going to have to trust slash hope that an honest conversation with the American people laying out the facts, that they will understand how important this issue is and why we need to fix it, and how we aren't going to be taking money out of the people who are currently retired. We're not going to be screwing the people who are retired. We're not going to be screwing the people who are near retirement. We're not talking about any of that. And anyone who conflates the two, fixing the system, and you're, you're pushing granny off the cliff, is doing nothing more than, 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 than carrying water for the, for, for, for the state, for big government. Is pushing one of the most atrocious big government programs that we have. Entitlement spending, and, and, and we are going to move to food after this because we have spent a lot of time talking about politics and a lot of time talking about culture today. But Social Security and Medicare. are not the sexiest topics. But in primaries, we know that a lot of these candidates are going to agree on a lot of things, right? Oh, for all Republican candidates are going to be pro-life, right? We're not going to elect. If you're not a pro-life candidate, you just don't, just don't even get on the debate stage, right? So we've checked the pro-life box. For a lot of people, pro-life, that's the first box that we check. Are you pro I'm not going any further. Are you pro-life? Yes, check. All right, now let's start to get into some other things. I would assume Second Amendment. Pro-Second Amendment, yeah. Check. These are easy ones, right? Do you want to cut government spending? That's going to be up there. What about transgender athlete and bathroom bills? That's going to be up there, right? Entitlement spending is going to be there, too, for some people. As that issue that they're looking at for, okay, all these people agree on this stuff. Where are the differentiators? Right. This person wants to shrink the administrative state. This person wants to keep it where it is, which would meet, essentially means expand it. Right? There's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. Barry Goldwater. <laughs> Just remember that when we're out there voting. All right. Okay. I have a question for you, Katie. What's your question? First of all, did you know that the Bidens went out to dinner the other day? You know, I thought they didn't eat food, so that is surprising. Right, they just, just, just blended up for him to kind of just drink through a straw. Yeah, no, I kind of assume the same thing, too, but they did go out, and for those of you without a library in your town, um, this used to be when the Obamas were in D.C. This was... The event of the week. <laughs> Where are the Obamas going to go out to dinner? Oh, my gosh. 
everything about it would be covered. Politico, Fox, NBC, The Hill. You ought to know what they ordered, what they drank, what they talked about, who they died, why they went to the restaurant. What was the name of the pig that was slaughtered for the pork dish? <laughs> Where and what presidents eat is enduring fascination. This comes from the Associated Press, I believe. The Washington Post, Emily Heil. Heil. Where and what presidents eat is an enduring fascination. We love to scrutinize former President Donald Trump's ketchup douse steaks or the Obama's penchant for culinary hotspots. Ta-da. See, there it is. And so when President Biden and his wife, Jill Biden, that's Dr. Jill Biden to you, Em, how could, that's just disrespectful. <laughs> Dr. Jill around these parts recently dined out in Washington, D.C. at the popular Red Hen restaurant. Their order, a chicory salad, grilled bread and butter, and two bowls of rigatoni drew attention. Because they both ordered carbs? they both ordered the same thing. They both ordered the rigatoni. Well, they both wanted the rigatoni. So there's my question to you. And we live together. We've been together for almost sixteen years. This is true. So typically speaking, we do eat the same meal every night because we cook our own meals. However, have you ever stopped yourself from ordering a dish at a restaurant because I ordered it before you? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> have you? No. No. No, I haven't. I've never thought about it ever. I don't know how often we order the same thing. Well, that's the thing, right? I would, I would, I would never, and I don't know who knows how, the, how often the Bidens own the same thing, but it's not shocking for two people to go to a fancy restaurant or a nice restaurant to go, hey, that dish looks good. Hey, you know what? I act, you know what? I think I'm going to get it too. It just, it's just hitting the spot, right? You never know what it is. I don't find, there are so many things to pick on the Bidens for. Starting with the fact that they're just weird people. <laughs> it's just a bowl of pasta, folks. Do you think it's weird? Do you think you don't think? Obviously not. You don't think it's weird? What are they supposed to do? Each only eat half and then order something else and eat half of that? Well, like, some why? people are saying that they like to order different things so that they can try so that that different thing from their partner so that, you know, they can we can they can both try something. I thought this looks good. I kind of like that, though. Why don't we each get it, get, get it and we could try each other's? Well, maybe they didn't think there were two things that looked good. Maybe it was just the one. Right. Another possibility, right? Another right. possibility. You don't want to be the person who has to pick the other thing, and then it's not as good, and you're like, cool. Right? I wish I'd order the pasta. Right? Oh, my gosh. That's the worst, right? Especially when that happens at the weddings, at weddings all the time, right? You oh, know, you yeah. can see, like, oh, I should have gotten the steak, or oh, I should have gotten the chicken. No one, ever says I no one ever says I ever should have gotten the fish. <laughs> Especially at weddings, you get there and you're like, did I really order the beef? I don't think I would have done that when everything comes out and you're like, it doesn't look as good. I don't yes. think I did that. <laughs> right? Right? Oh my gosh, that's too good. No, I completely... That's where it is. So yeah, that's the food. That's the food debate. I found nothing. Red, uh, we're red How hen- are you feeling since drinking the sugar bomb on Monday? Are you feeling queasy? Have you gotten lightheaded? Have you drunk the whole thing? I'm staring at it right now. Yeah, I know it's not in our fridge anymore, so now it's just like a novelty that lives on the shelf. The, lev- the level of soda in there is the same level that um, was in there when I uh, finished the show on Monday. I'm not planning on drinking more of it tonight. Um, will I have any more of it at another time? Um, maybe, um, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I feel like you're going to have to throw it away soon because it's going to get flat and then it's just going to be sweet, flat grossness. Man, just like describing that makes me like feel a little unsettled, like unsettled. Yeah. It's just toss it. 
Man, the Red Hen is like in the heart of where you kind of just didn't used to go. And what are you talking about? Uh, the Red Hen restaurant where the Bidens went. I was just oh. curious as to where it was in Washington, D.C. It is on. Where? It's like over. What are the cross streets? The cross streets are Rhode Island and Florida. Okay. Yeah. So it's just like it's it's over by like kind of by like Union Market. Okay. It's a little north of you. It's between Union Market and Howard. Which like it's getting better there. Yeah, like the ha- so like the Howard area is next to like Columbia Heights, and like I never really like some people thought Columbia Heights. I never really thought Columbia Heights was all like that sketch, mostly because like Howard is there, like and Howard's not a sketch area, um, and like Gallaudet's over there, but it's just like one of those parts of town where it didn't look like the other built up parts of town. I guess I should say that. Like, this was definitely in an area, like, especially, like, the Columbia Heights, where people are like, oh, there's so much gentrification here. It's like, well, get used to it. (laughs) All right. All right. That's it. That's all I got. You'll probably hear us on Friday. We do have visitors, so we'll see. They'll hear us. (laughs) Yeah. Talk soon. The chant is drill, baby, drill. He had such enormous fun that he called for another elephant to come. It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. Secretary Clinton. America, stay out the bushes. Stay out the bushes. Jet is a mess. <laughs> <laughs>